0: Welcome beyond the Now Podcast listeners. I'm Kelly Bad, one of your co-hosts, and Amanda Jones is obviously with us in studio as always. And we share today a conversation with you that's tackling pretty prominent social issue in the US. Uh, of undocumented migrants and as we seek to demystify the changemaker journey our guest uh, has really taken the time to advocate for a perspective change and also just reframing mind mindsets about a big group of people in the U.S. that uh, is often misrepresented.
1: Today we are welcoming Caitlin O'Hara onto the podcast to discuss her master's thesis in international community development. Her master's thesis is titled, Standing with our Immigrant Neighbors, Implications for Right Response. And before we start off, I just want to read one quote from her thesis that I think really encapsulates the conversation. And she says in her thesis, I feel it is time for our society to fight for justice for our immigrant neighbors, to respond to God's call to love by welcoming the vulnerable and to recognize our shared humanity with them. It is only then that we may walk side by side with our immigrant neighbors, exchange narratives, share in suffering and joy, and be transformed by our differences. With that, we welcome you to the podcast. Enjoy.
0: So if you would just like share with us what you're up to now and where you find yourself uh, and the context of work that you're doing right now and after your thesis and yeah.
2: Um, After finishing up my thesis, Mm -hmm. I did some volunteer work helping with career development for refugees and immigrants. Um, And then I moved on to getting a full-time position as a refugee resettlement caseworker. Um, So for about seven months, I would meet the families at the airport. I was involved in everything with like getting them settled and um, adjusting to new life in the United States, helping their mm-hmm. kids in school, finding apartments, getting jobs, um, getting social security cards, um, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then because of COVID, so many things changed. Um, families weren't coming here. I mean, what would be the point? You know, jobs were shut down, uh, businesses, um, those that kind of came at the, the cutoff were unable to get social security cards. So it was just like living in limbo. So. so then they kind wow. of shifted my job uh, trying to keep me on um, with doing mm-hmm. rent assistance for refugees so I would help them mm-hmm. um, interview them and uh, give them a certain amount of money that we were able to okay. get from a grant and then that ran out and my position was dissolved and so I began kind of looking for something similarly but obviously uh, yeah. working in that field with yeah. that clientele was not the best like option for job security for me so um, you know I since I was kind of experienced with helping hmm. with rental assistance and housing I moved into doing homeless prevention and so right now I work with typically um, single household uh, families that have a disability or that are elderly Um, and I help them with rental assistance case management finding resources um, if they need help with you know medical insurance or that kind of thing I help them with that so that's kind of what I'm doing now Um, that sounds really similar to social work actually my sister is a social
1: it's
2: just what it is (laughs) okay do you work alongside other social workers um. Yeah. Um. A lot of my other coworkers have a, a degree in social work and MSW. Mm. Um. And that's what's mm-hmm. so great about honestly the ICD program is we right. focus on a lot of those same core issues and working with the same population. Um. It's just a yeah. different title on our sure. diploma. So. Totally. Wow. That is so
1: interesting. <clears throat> that's really cool. We're so happy that you're doing the work that you are. It's so important. So important. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So then maybe we can take it back. We're going to go into your story. So Kaylin, where are you from originally and what were the conversations around immigration like back home?
2: Um, Originally, um, I've kind of moved around. My dad is a pastor of Mm -hmm. Evangelical Assemblies of God Church. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And I lived in Montana for a while Mm -hmm. and then a small town here in Washington state. Um, very small town, a lot of blue collar jobs, um, a lot of Republican conservatives. Mm-hmm. Um, surprisingly, they do have mm-hmm. some diversity, but is mainly with the Hispanic population. Quite a few families there. But besides that, it's, uh, it's pretty small town white America. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. I, I suppose the conversations about immigration kind of started happening when Obama became president. Um, That always kind of becomes an issue when like, you know, a Democrat becomes president and starts working on the core issues that they kind of stand for. And for many Republicans, it's not the issue that they're hoping for and it it scares them and worries them. And um, my family's pretty outspoken, at least, you know, to me and to friends. And um, I remember them just starting, Mm. they would just, you know, say small little things that bothered me. Um, And I hope my parents don't kill me for Mm. saying this, but like we would go on a plane or something and there would be someone with a headdress and my mom would be like, Oh my gosh, I'm so scared. Like, I hope nothing happens on the plane. Like (laughs) we keep getting more. Yeah. We keep getting more and more like people from the middle East over here. And like, I knew this was going to like, so it started with like kind of small things that didn't sit right with me. And I didn't say much, you know, I was pretty young, Um, but I would just wonder, you know, why, where were that, where was that coming from? And was that true you know like you have to you have to be able to look at both sides of the argument and then um, as things kind of progressed with some of the like policies around immigration and allowing more in I didn't know at the time but I think was a fear of losing their like cultural and religious identity I just was confused by it and so that's always kind of been something in the back of my head but I had never spent the time to actually study it Um, so when I entered the I C D program and like you know, Dr. Ensley mm-hmm. was like, what would you like to, what's something that you're passionate about? What's something that, you know, you could spend a, a big bunch of time, like, research, you know, mowing through. Mm-hmm. And that was one of my top things was I'd really like to get down to the core oh. of why, like, many conservative white Americans um have an issue with the immigration policies and want it to be more restrictive and want to separate themselves from that people group. I just did not, did not see the, the threat yeah. with them. So, that's kind of where it all began. I feel like that's fairly, um, I don't know,
1: unique might not be the right word, but it, it seems really uh, hopeful that someone who comes from a context in which immigration is seen as um, a bad thing and people are afraid of it, that you would come and start questioning that. So I feel like that's that's really important and significant to to realize that, well, there are ways that we can change, but it's also really important to acknowledge our own racism like implicit and explicit because those things might be said behind closed doors but when it when it be i mean and and people start to Mm -hmm. they maybe don't recognize it or don't think it's such a big deal because it's behind closed doors but then when we start to look outwards and all of our conditioning has been around fear and doubt and skepticism around these people who we probably don't know or don't have haven't interacted with um that's that's a really unhealthy precedents for <clears throat> stepping into the world and creating policy. So
2: I was going to say I guess another seed that kind of gave me hope or just kind of a different understanding or um kind of had me leaning towards becoming an advocate for refugees and immigrants was that I worked for a while in um you know, a food service industry and many of my coworkers mm-hmm. were immigrants. Um first generation, um, you know, English as a second language, and they were the most amazing, generous, hardworking kind, just, like, only positive traits I saw, you know, um, in them. And so that was where I was just kind of like, that's interesting. Like, the narrative that, like, this side, you know, are, are kind of attaching to these people is not really fitting with when you're actually face-to-face and, like, engaging with them in conversation is not fitting. So where does it come from, you know? Does it come from the media? Does it come from some sort of bias back and you know they met one person and you know now attach that stereotype to everyone so I guess um where part of me just was I'm kind Mm -hmm. of like an investigator anyways naturally by nature and so seeing and interacting with that those kind you know people and then seeing it not matching up with what maybe people around me were saying to be true gave me enough like Mm -hmm. kind of resistance to what they were saying to be like hey know I'm gonna like look a little further into that and also I'm very I'm very into debate and like not I don't want to say arguing but like challenging and um so I was kind of excited to actually not just be like well this is my opinion but to like be like well I studied this and I went here and I met this person and I read this book and here you go you know kind of giving them more difficulty in um just being able to say what they think and also giving me a more like foundation of the platform for them to listen like or like believe what i'm saying right
0: yeah it's so important to think through what you're thinking and being able to vocalize that in a way that's challenging and respectful at the same time i think it's a skill that that our generations don't really uh, cultivate often enough Mm. honestly and and i think yeah we could definitely put more effort into <laughs> doing that so would you then say that that it was people's resistance to open up their minds that really pushed you into advocacy or was there an instance that you realized like oh these are the issues or the people that i want to advocate for and spend my life on
2: you know like i kind of hit a little on this in answering one of the questions and i think originally because i had mm that context that was kind of the hot topic back home that I focused on this people group but essentially I think it just comes down to all the stereotypes you know that I'm fighting that we're fighting against that people um, place on a people group that may not be true and that caused them to be like no we shouldn't help them we shouldn't advocate for them when maybe there are some people that fit that stereotype but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be helping and advocating for people and i could even say that about the homeless population you know i've heard my my family or friends or you know people have myself included you know have a stereotype about or a belief system about what homeless people are like and why they're homeless and you know they should just get a job or whatever it is that is not it's simply not true Mm -hmm. um so i think that at the core Um, of it, it just came down to that resistance and basing opinions on fear. And that fear just makes me angry. (laughs) Um, I think that we should never allow fear to rule our lives. Mm -hmm. And the second that we do, no matter what the issue is, we're not living in truth, right? We're living in this false reality to try to protect ourselves, what essentially is harming us more, you know, and harming other people. Mm So I think seeing Mm -hmm. fear being guiding you know um, decisions and opinions is really what made Mm. me upset and want to be like a truth seeker and a bridge builder and it it doesn't have to be with refugees or immigrants but that just was kind of where I was being led at the time
1: you're talking about a lot of these assumptions we have and fears about who the undocumented or who immigrants are so I think it's really interesting how already you're hitting on this point of We're afraid. We're making these assumptions. And the question that I want to ask you is, then who are the undocumented? Or how would you define the
2: undocumented? I mean, when you think about the undocumented and the immigration system and how it works, the people that struggle the hardest to gain, you know, lawful entry into the country are the most vulnerable of the most vulnerable, the most poor, right? Like people that have no connections here, people that need, you know, to come here, Based on whether it be you know um, safety for their family, for themselves, um, their well-being, um, and I think that people that are undocumented tend to be mothers. Um, a lot of single women will come with their their child or their children, um, or you know children, um, which are allowed to be undocumented. Thankfully here, they can be unaccompanied mm-hmm. minors, um, or you mm-hmm. know yeah. it's a father that is trying to save their family financially um, that just really wants to work hard here. And like uh, some of them, you know, yeah. they don't even want to live here. They simply want to come here to work, but because of how difficult it is to go back and forth, they mm-hmm. remain because they're sacrificing, you know, for their families. And so the people yeah. that I find mm-hmm. that are undocumented are those that are simply living such a a, living in crisis twenty four seven and are trying to find an escape from it, and they can't wait ten years, twenty years, mm-hmm. to come here. That and that's what our immigration policy asks of them. So, it's just not possible. Yeah. And I think that's who I see as the undocumented.
1: There's such a huge contrast between the environment that some might be in, say Guatemala or like Venezuela, where there's just drastic. And, um, impetus for them to move, and then imagine coming to a place where um, you're not supported, and there might even be. I'm mean, just thinking of someone who might end up joining a gang because they're not, uh, their family isn't able to um, either educate them or keep them, or they're not able to get a job. So there's not an environment that's even fostering qualities to a human that are already there that are innate. To us, And I would say, like, like you were saying, good character and just a desire to be here and a love for their family. And then I, I could imagine it being really challenging coming to a country that's like already labeling you and then not supporting you. And it's like, well, that seems like a pipeline um, towards where they want you to go and not to be supported. So this is just me reflecting and, and thinking about the environment in which people enter a country.
2: Yeah, and it's it's not just that way for people that come unlawfully, it's that way for anyone starting over when, you know, working with refugee yeah. families, you see kind of this curve of when they first arrive, they're kind of on a high, this hope, this amazing, I'm finally here, and then it starts to slowly just come crashing down with, well, I, you know, you have to work a manual labor job, you have four kids, so you have to work two jobs because your wife can't work a job because... Mm-hmm. You know, she has no education or whatever, or she needs to take care of the kids, and it just slowly is like, you know, you have to live in an apartment. I know you lived in a home or a house back home, but here you can't afford that in Seattle. So Mm -hmm. even for families that right, or you might have been a doctor, or you might have these
1: really amazing Mm -hmm. skills, like you might be a Mm -hmm. dressmaker, but there's no place for you to use those skills, and like how demeaning would that feel? Totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: But it, that's the best case scenario, right? Uh, worst case scenario is you get taken to yeah. the Immigration and Customs Enforcement centers, uh, known more, you know, informally as ICE. And mm-hmm. you did uh, some of your research for your thesis there. Uh, could you tell us a little bit of what it was like?
2: Yeah, I could, like get emotional. I hope <laughs> <It's>, I don't. <laughs> it's
0: good. It's um, good. We like to draw. So.
2: <laughs> um. Yeah. No. First. And foremost, I barely made it through my thesis presentation, I'll tell you that I was like crying, I had to like hold myself <laughs> together when I would, I based a lot of my my handbook that I produced on narratives of specific individuals, because I feel like that is the most moving and inspiring for people, especially if you're maybe on the fence. Yeah. But um, those those narr- those like stories that I uncovered, or that I was honored enough to tell were from individuals I met at the uh, Immigration mm-hmm. Detention Center. And I didn't even know it was there. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people don't here in Washington state. I would tell people, you know, Hey, Tacoma, you know, it has this huge detention facility and they'd be like, mm. what are you, what really? And I'm like, yeah, just down the road from the huge casino <laughs> off of the freeway. It's it's right there in like an industrial park. And you know, yeah, I've been, yeah. And they have it, you know, kind of hidden away purposefully. I feel like, and um, I spent time both on the inside doing like window visits with people and then I spent time on the outside um, at what they call the welcome Mm -hmm. center. It was like a trailer and we'd sit in lawn chairs and Mm. um, you never know when they're going to release like whatever group of people they're releasing for the day and so we just wait. Um, Sometimes we'd get a call from a lawyer or someone on the inside and they'd be like, they're going to release people in like an hour. (gasps) Be ready. And it could be like one person. It could be Mm. 10 people.
1: What do you mean by like where where do they go what happens
2: exactly (laughs) so the people that they're releasing are people that were approved for like asylum so yeah they came here unlawfully but then through like proving certain paperwork that their life was in in danger or whatever Mm. they had a court hearing and they released them with nothing um many of them like i met one guy that he had Hired someone to move him. He came all the way from the Congo and moved up through Central America, um, and was caught on the border twice. Um, once I can't in Mexico or something. I don't know. But and then once here. And when he was released, he was in like torn pants, just dirt because that's that's all they give them. You can either be released in your like uh, sweat outfit that obviously says I was just in detention or prison. And, yeah. and it was the middle of summer, you know. Um, when I was there, or you can be released in the clothes that you were detained in, which can be, you know, someone was in their construction outfit because they were, mm. they were taken from their work site during their job or yeah. things like that. And so, um, we would help them. So we would buy them plane tickets if they had to go back home, you know, like some of people were um, released because they agreed to go back home. And so we'd help buy them plane tickets. We'd help, Hey, do you have like a phone number of someone we can do an international call to your family? Um, one woman, which I share as one of the most like powerful stories to me, because she didn't even speak English. And we were talking through a translator. She spoke very limited English, but the powerful conversation that we were able to have when she was just released was just beyond words. And she was, um, separated from her family, from her children, and they would do this purposely. So they put like, they put them in the foster care system. And put her children over on the East Coast. And the only reason we were able to track them down Mm -hmm. is she got a, like, pro bono, like, a lawyer that was willing to kind of work for her, found her children. And so we were able to buy her the plane ticket over to the East Coast. And she had agreed, the only reason she was let out, she agreed to go back to Honduras, where her life had been threatened because she witnessed a gang murder. And so, like, you know, that's kind of what I did there. And it was just story after story. And it was hard because with I, you know, you know, this with a vulnerable population, you don't just come out and say, Hey, can I hear your traumatic story? <laughs> but like, I kind of found that during the waiting, or, you know, just in interacting, they wanted to share their story, you know, with with someone. Yeah. And um, sometimes we'd spend an hour or two sitting out on the lawn chairs waiting for, you know, that the flight to get booked or this. And we would just talk mm-hmm. and that's, you know, experience with directly with the population experiencing our kind of unjust uh, immigration system and policy kind of came from. And it was very powerful for me. I wish that everyone could <laughs> experience that. Right.
0: Yeah. It's hard to process those uh, difficult conversations. And mm-hmm. uh, we we just released our first interview. And our guest had talked about processing people's trauma in your body. Mm. And I think that, especially yeah. in that context, is, is something to chew on and work through. And But I, I think there's just so many stories, right? There's just, you can eventually cannot put them into words, even. Uh, mm. I was even told uh, by, I don't know if you guys had Brian Humphreys.
2: I actually... Sp- I, I didn't have him as a um, instructor, no but I have a lot of respect for him. Oh yeah, and he took us to the ice
0: bu- ice building.
2: He did. Yeah,
0: for our community development wow. class, as a field trip, and uh, well, field trip sounds terrible, <laughs> but but yeah. uh, we get we got to meet uh, some people who, and so they set up a little table out there and uh, taking donations or. From, from the community or if you want to donate funds so that they can support oh. the, the people who are inside. And they were telling us how, and mm. this to me was absolutely unacceptable and outrageous, how the, the moms and dads who earlier that year had dropped off their kids at kindergarten and first grade, after they dropped off their kids, they were picked up by ice outside of the school. And so when the kids were done with hmm. school, there was no one to pick them up. And mm-hmm. I'm, I just want to cry right now. Like that is that those poor kids, you know, the fear that they must mm-hmm. live in every day because um, like you're saying, like people don't understand what they're thinking or how they're thinking about something um, and just giving into other kinds of information that that tell only one-sided stories. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: it's it's so harmful. So yes. It's not always easy being able to take care of yourself uh, in the midst of hearing these stories and wishing that you could do more. I know that is always uh, the feeling that I get when my sister will briefly tell me about, the context of what's going on with some of her clients she's like I the only thing I can do is offer more resources and advocate for more resources and just keep letting people know and and communicating about um the fact that these are real people and these are real stories and that it's going on as we speak it's not ending I feel so much um pride and joy when I when I speak about my sister when I think about you and, and people who are doing the work to just give them the resources that we have um i know that it's not easy but again just taking care of our social workers taking care of our justice workers is so integral Uh,
2: i mean that was one of my points for what i feel the the biblical response to immigration should be is Mm -hmm. fostering hospitality and camaraderie and a huge part of that is sharing and suffering Mm -hmm. you know hospitality can simply Mm -hmm. be having the space inside of yourself Mm -hmm. for someone else's story or someone else's pain and even when you can't, mm-hmm. as like a social worker, mm-hmm. refer someone to, sometimes there are no resources. Sometimes all you need yeah. is to sit with them and share in that suffering. They're crying and you're holding that pain with them and you're listening sometimes for an hour. And I, in the yeah. back of my head, sometimes a thought will creep up like, you really have you know some people to do, but it's like nothing's more important than in this moment, mm-hmm. giving that person, you know the respect enough to say, "I have time to listen mm-hmm. to you." you know, and I have, I have the space for that. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is so important. Um, so important because yeah, well, that's good. That's me sometimes, you know, to someone else. And so it's a give and take, um, system and yeah, so important to, to share in someone's suffering. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Thanks for sharing about your experience. At Ice. I know that's, that's tough to talk about, but again, really important to just keep highlighting stories and keep, keep the conversation going around that. Um, So I really want to move into um, the shoes of someone who might be opposed to immigration and just kind of imagining the assumptions and thoughts and feelings around that. Um, And maybe it it might be helpful to hear your experience of uh, before studying immigration, what kind of assumptions did you have? You yeah. know, knowing what you do now, obviously yes. you, you did Great. quite a bit of research um, on the history of immigration in the U.S. Um, did you have anything that surprised you, or yeah, um, now looking back, some assumptions that you want to kind of debunk for us?
2: I was aware of the most common, you know, misconceptions, and also in knowing that there probably are some some truths, yeah. and in some situations, it does affect people. Um, these misconceptions can be true. Um, but for the most part, I found that they weren't. And the biggest ones were, you know, that allowing immigrants here affects our economy negatively because they're taking certain, you know, entry level jobs away from people or, you know, you know, whatever it is that um, they're negatively affecting our economy, um, that you know, that it's affecting our national security and public safety. Like many people, this is something I hear all the time, is that the people that are coming here un, unlawfully are criminals and they're bringing drugs and they're bringing crime and they're affecting our neighborhoods, you know, and impacting us in this way, which is simply not true. Like, not that there aren't some, like, people that are trafficking drugs in here, but the population that I'm, like, you know, talking mm-hmm. about um, and on are those that are mainly coming here for work for safety for you know to be reunited with family definitely not coming here to traffic drugs or to be a part of a gang and like you mentioned maybe I think it was you Amanda like some people that come here that don't have the support systems end up in our criminal um, justice system which is a whole nother ineffective and unjust system you know but it's it's not that they are coming here to purposely or intentionally, that's their goal is to bring crime. Um, and then the the third one that I think, if I, to be honest, I think really drives a lot of the religious groups in being maybe anti right, yeah. uh, refugee and immigrants um, is the fear of losing maybe that I- ideology, which I I don't even find to be true. But as America, as a Christian, you know, nation and English speaking being. The most prominent yeah. being afraid that you know more and more English will not be you know the main language in the United States and um mm. there'll be more Muslims than Christian whatever it is, you know, I feel like that is a huge driving force mm. and a a misconception in mm. the whole uh evangelical church as well. Yeah, I think
0: there's a that in itself is a big question and I think you do address uh some of those points in your thesis right um and yeah there's a lot yeah. of i think there's a lot of discussion to be had because uh there isn't a separation between culture and faith uh, in most religious contexts i'm not just going to call out christianity but it it's it's in most religious contexts actually and when you put politics into the well Let's forget politics. When you put power into the mix, it's just simply that. Um, it becomes, um, it becomes so self-focused. And I think uh, we for, we forget our yeah. priorities, which if mm-hmm. I think you are a That's person of faith, then yeah. your priority Very should tribal. be your faith, not your culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so yeah. there's that, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, after you've conducted yeah. your fieldwork, you basically put together an educational handbook on just advocating for undocumented migrants yeah. and how we can foster community oriented care for them. I guess we were just wondering if you were to summarize that to someone who is afraid or resistant to immigrants in the US, what would you say?
2: I suppose I would say and what I kind of learned through the whole process is typically on a lot of like politically charged, you know, topics, they tend to polarize the topic. So Mm -hmm. it's either build the wall or let them all in or, you know, whatever it is. (laughs) And it's just so like dramatized. And it's it's simply not the way for change Mm -hmm. as like I have experienced change happens in small, tiny, but impactful steps. And so that's why my whole kind of point in the handbook was trying to find, you know, maybe just a small way of making the immigration system better. And I think that, To people that maybe are on the fence or that are against it or opposed, I would just say the handbook is simply to warm you up. You know, it's not this big radical like stance. And it's simply to, if you're willing to broaden your mind a little, and honestly, not even to try to convince anyone of anything, but to question and just sit with your questions and say, well, why do you think you believe that, you know, and um, that's why I thought it was so integral to have like those section yeah. questions between each kind of main topic, it's a lot to unpack. And I think it, yeah. it kind of viewed it as doing it with a group of friends or a community group um, and doing it wow. together mm-hmm. um, versus just kind of reading it alone because that's where you can really dive in and feel safe and comfortable to maybe ask yourself, well, yeah, I've believed this for this okay. amount of time, but why mm-hmm. and where am I getting these facts and, Um, so many people I find have such a hard time, um, being able to admit maybe that what you've believed could not be correct. So, you know, how can being willing to say, yeah, I used to think this, but Mm -hmm. now that I've matured or I've done this and that and had this experience, Mm -hmm. I, I, it may not be true. You know, just being able to sit in Mm -hmm. that unknown people don't seem to be very willing to. And so it's just an encouragement to sit in that uncomfortable space of maybe not knowing or maybe you've seen I don't have an opinion yet I'm I'm forming that opinion yeah. I'm yeah. you know working on this issue and so that's kind of what mm-hmm. I would summarize it as um not something to be so like uh overtly pro you know <laughs> letting all the immigrants in or doing that yeah. or trying to convince you of something but right. just to kind of
0: Yeah. (laughs) Open up conversation.
2: Yes, exactly.
1: It could so easily be that though. I think so easily people are like um, trying to utilize facts and emotions and things, feelings, drawing on the vulnerabilities of ourselves to try and change someone's mind. And that's totally unsustainable. Um, It's really manipulative. And reading the section Mm -hmm. review questions and I just love them because I think the first three are really about the person themselves reading it like what concerns do you have do you relate with any of these do you have immigrant neighbors how do you feel about that Mm. um and all within the context of trying to kind of zoom out I think and reframe a little bit of of the whole narrative without overwhelming people and being like here are all the facts (laughs) like that's weird um right and I think it's a really good point. You said even people who haven't made a decision or who feel like overwhelmed by the conversation. Like I can relate with that mm-hmm. being um, leaning, obviously, I mean, not obviously, but leaning towards I would welcome my immigrant neighbor and I really enjoy multicultural experiences and perspectives and hearing the stories of people who have immigrated. Like I, I want to inform myself, but maybe I don't have a space or maybe I don't have a community. Who i um, mm. also interested in that and trying to reorient our perspectives because, and it's really easy when you're in a community to right. just like believe that because it uh, makes sense locally and it makes sense to you and your family, but there's not really an opportunity to expand and there's no institutions who are forcing us to expand our minds, um, which is why I think you're, I don't know if it would be a strategy, but I say it's strategic to take. <laughs> and to um you know ask community pastors to to bring this to their congregations um and i want to ask you about that experience um i think i read in your thesis that you um, had someone who actually contacted you and and said love to have this handbook what was that like how was the reception and and what's kind of happened with it now i
2: had my own pastor which the church that I go to is a pretty I would say liberal for maybe uh being assemblies of God. Um, we talk a lot about sure. social justice issues and a lot of hot topics and um he you know said that I would love to use this for community groups mm-hmm. and we are kind of I mean, in the making, we're going to do the next round of when community group started mm-hmm. up and I was going to host to begin, you know, to and have a couple people that might take it over afterwards, be a part of the community group to kind of see how we went through the handbook. And then COVID and everything happened. Oh and it's just, yeah. I know, I would honestly, I read back through it again, and I hadn't had not a bit to prepare a little bit for speaking with you guys. And it just really made me wish or want to pursue Finding those avenues where people could utilize it uh, just not really knowing where to start with that but mm. um I think it's I am yeah. really proud of it and I, I I would love for it you know even if it was just local churches mm. here in Washington if someone wanted to use it as like curriculum for a small group or something I think that that would be great and that was the purpose of it so <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'd
1: be so valuable no that's great and we love to hear the fact that you know maybe you haven't figured it out or you came to a standstill because these are the moments where we can ask ourselves, hmm, like What's in what time? way, can we, <laughs> yeah, yeah, what can we do with this? And and I'm even just thinking like maybe this isn't necessarily the audience, but people are educating themselves via social media. I think it's more than a mm-hmm. Gen Z generation, mm-hmm. um, but it's so powerful and like getting that into the hands of an organization who already has some interested people um I think would be really cool I actually attended this film fest um around uh, kind of educating people on uh, black issues in America and they had these Mm -hmm. kind of discussion questions they showed films and then afterwards they would have kind of reflection and it was meant to be Mm -hmm. a community-oriented thing and they managed to do it during COVID which was so impressive the way people are doing this but that being said that was like a whole organization kind of brainstorming like "Hmm, where could we put this and who um who needs to hear this so yes so this is the first part of our conversation with Kaylin O'Hara next week you can hear more of the conversation where we discuss some of the assumptions that we may have about immigrants. We'll talk more about Kaylin's thesis work and uh, some of her interviews at and we'll talk more about her change maker journey and her uh, journey to advocacy. Um, so please join us next week for that conversation and you'll also get to hear a debrief between Kayla and I as we discuss some of our insights and thoughts about the conversation that we've had with her. If you have any questions for Kayla or I, you can go to our social media and send them our way or go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review with any of your thoughts uh, or questions about this episode. Thank you for
0: listening to this episode of Beyond the Now. We aim to encourage changemakers who are ready to take action on their visions and solutions for a more empathetic, diverse, and sustainable world. If you know someone who thinks beyond the now and is looking to build a life dedicated to social change, share this episode with them. We'll see you next time.